0: pray together. Father, now in these precious moments that we have together, your word, your truth, your son, come alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, between my sophomore and junior year in college, Mr. Abramowitz, my spiritual father, talked to the mayor of my town in Freeport, Illinois, who attended our church, and through that connection, I was able to get a summer job working for the city of Freeport. It was an amazingly great paying job for a college student in 1986. It's easy to remember. It was seven seventy-seven an hour. Minimum wage was just over $3 an hour at the time. I was getting paid more than double minimum wage. My job that first summer was working on the summer road maintenance crew. Now, it might be hard for you to imagine, but I was the smallest guy there. (laughs) I had to get my CDL to drive the big drum trucks, and I worked as hard as I could and especially tried to be as helpful as possible. One of the things I remember... Uh, was all the guys thanking me for cleaning the break room, especially the microwave. Because everybody thought it was the other person's responsibility to clean the microwave, so nobody did it. But there was no way I was going to put my food into that filthy microwave. Well, that summer, somebody gave me a book to read. It was entitled, The Pursuit of Holiness, by Jerry Bridges. I wish I still had that book uh, because it has tar stains all over it as I read it during uh, my lunch breaks. I remember so fondly that book, not just because of the the tar stains, but because how God used that book in my life. It was just the right teaching at just the right moment in my life. I can vividly remember reading chapter 8, Obedience, Not Victory. And my life has been different since then. I'd been a growing Christian for under four years, but I wanted more out of myself for Christ. And he wanted more out of me for him. So questions were swirling in my heart and in my head. How is one supposed to live like a Christian? What does it mean to be holy? Does God even want me to be holy? What are his expectations? Why do I struggle so much with my sin? How can I overcome sin? How can I love Christ so much and yet fail so regularly? How can I change? If I have any hope of being the kind of follower of Christ that I long to be and that God was calling me to be, I needed some answers to some of these basic questions. I knew I was supposed to grow but I really wasn't sure how. And then God provided the pursuit of holiness. How about you? Do you have some of these same questions in your life? Basic questions, fundamental questions. Can you answer them? Over the next several weeks, we're gonna be pursuing the answers to these questions as we pursue holiness. Over the summer, I'm gonna attempt to help us progress down the road in our practical holiness. And I'm praying and hoping that God will do for you what he did for me that summer, all those years ago. The first question we're going to ask today is, is holiness required of the followers of Christ? Is holiness required? Does God want us to be holy? Does God expect us to be holy? Is our growth in holiness a command of God. Is holiness required? Well, turn in your Bibles with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you as holy... You also be holy in all your contact. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Ask the question, answered the question, right? Yes, God wants us to be holy. Yes, God expects us to be holy. He has commanded us to be holy. Yes, holiness is required of all followers of Christ. Now, partly what I hope to do over the summer, too, is a memory verse or two over the summer. So, our first memory verse is this one, 1 Peter 14 through 16. All right, so let's, um, if you've got your Bibles open and that's your preferred Bible translation, then go ahead and memorize from that. We're going to read together um, 1 Peter 1 14 through 16 in the ESV. So let's read together. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Some translations translate that that last quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Some translations say, You must be holy, for I am holy. See, it's a command. Holiness is an obligation. It's a requirement. It's a necessity. God commands it. As we delve into our study, I'd recommend for you to read that book by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. There are other books as I'll be referencing throughout the study, too, a uh, book by Kevin DeYoung called The Whole and Our Holiness. A great book, new book out by Sinclair Ferguson called Devoted to God. And then a classic by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. Now perhaps you're sitting there thinking, you know, watching paint dry is a lot more fun than messages on holiness. You know, holiness is kind of so last generation, right? Holiness in our day, when applied to the followers of God, often is a negative word. There's a phrase we use to scorn people with this false sense of superiority. We we say of them, they have a holier-than-thou attitude. Holiness, in that saying, is equated with self-righteousness. Holiness is often negatively equated as well with judgment and intolerance. No one wants to be culturally ostracized for being judgmental and intolerant and self-righteous. If we stress God's holiness, someone might be offended. If we try to grow in our holiness in our life, we might become weird. For some of us, that's a shorter distance than for others. Which brings up what perhaps pictures in your mind when we think about holiness, right? We think of a woman, you know, with her hair in a bun, wearing a long, drab dress with a very sad, forlorn look on her face. Or you picture a man in some polyester three-piece suit with short hair and no facial hair and carrying the biggest Bible that a person could possibly carry, right? Holiness is old-fashioned. Holiness is stuffy. It's a starched shirt. Often in our day, holiness is put on one side and grace is put on the other. Holiness is on one side and love of God is on the other. In our modern thinking, often holiness is looked down upon as confining, as laws, commands, legalism. We're people of grace, we say. We're people of love and freedom in Christ. Jesus said in John fifteen nine, As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's all about the love of God, not the holiness of God. Falsely, and may I say even more strongly, dishonestly and untruthfully, we have pitted holiness against love, holiness against grace, When the reality is the only way to become holy is through grace. The best way to express holiness is through love. The two are not separated, but intricately and intimately connected with one another. The Bible says that all true followers of Christ must be holy because God is holy. Holiness in a believer's life is as important and in an essential as biblical love. It's as important and essential as love. Why? Because God is love and because God is holy. Our culture and often even our Christian culture pushes us away from holiness, downplaying holiness with a false perception that holiness is just some kind of fake outward formalism when's the last time you heard a fellow believer say holiness i want to be more holy so why do we struggle with the concept of holiness if god expects every follower of his to pursue holiness to become more holy why do we struggle so much with holiness if holiness is so basic to the christian life why do we not experience it more in our daily lives namely for one big reason it's a small little word, one big reason. Sin. Growing in our holiness, in part, means confronting our sin. It means dealing with the sin in our lives. Bridges mentions three reasons why we so often lose sight of holiness. He says our first problem is that our attitude towards holiness, our attitude towards sin, is more self centered than God centered. Our attitude towards sin is more. Self-centered than God-centered. Have you ever heard of God-centered sin? Have you ever thought that not only is our sin selfishness, but our attitude towards our sin is selfishness? Today, everything's about us, right? We've perfected the non-apology apology. I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry that you might have been offended. If anyone misunderstood me, I'm sorry. Our apologies are about us. Our sin's about us. So often dealing with our sin is just focused on us. How is it going to affect me? Even when we try to view sin more correctly, we usually uh, focus on how we fell short. It's often not God's and it's not viewed first and foremost as an offense against God. Sin, my sin, your sin, is first and foremost an offense against the holy God. His holiness has been transgressed, and we stand guilty. King David, when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he understood that the greatest offense of his sin was against God. He wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless, your judgment. Oh, David sinned, right? Right? Big sins, adultery, murder, and the, a kind of selfishness that threatened his very reign of his kingdom. But he knew something very important about his sin. His sin was not just against himself. His sin was not just against all those that affected. His sin was first and foremost against God. His sin was an offense against God. It was evil in his sight. And God's judgment against him was righteous and right. David was a sinner, just like you and me. But David, in his confession, recognized God's holiness, recognized that his sin was against God. There's another great example of this in the Bible. We know him as the prodigal son. He had squandered his inheritance in reckless living. He had nothing left. He had wasted it all in the sin of the moment. He's broken. He's alone. He's hungry, says of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 17, and 18. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But if but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He could have just been all focused on himself. He could have been saying, look at, look at all that I've done to my life. But when he came to himself, he wasn't just thinking about himself when he came to himself he realized that his sin wasn't just about him when he came to himself he confessed his sin first against heaven and then against his father when he came to himself he realized that the sin was against god against his holiness against his character against his word against his will Perhaps today, this is the lesson you need to hear. This is the lesson you need to heed. Perhaps today, you need to start to evaluate and confess your sin in light of the holy character of God as an offense against him. That sin, it didn't just hurt you. It didn't just hurt those in your life. It hurt the very one who died to forgive it. May we, in our confession of our sin, become more God-centered against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, as a corollary to his first point, he mentions another reason why we don't take holiness seriously. We don't take holiness seriously because we categorize sin. We don't take some sin seriously seriously. We categorize it. Some sins are totally unacceptable. And some of the sins we do, we can find rather acceptable. We kind of willfully tolerate them. Yes, those really bad sins, the sins that we rarely ever do, yes, those sins are totally unacceptable and an an affront and an offense against God. But my little sins, the the ones that I like to do all the time, those sins we tolerate. We rarely see them as an offense against God and against his holiness. We excuse our sin, saying things like, I have an anger problem, but just every now and then. I talk to other people, about other people, but it's out of a heart of concern, not gossip. I spend money I don't have because I deserve it. Or sometimes, my gaze lingers just a bit too long, but that's not really lust. On and on we go, justifying ourselves, justifying our sin, because we've categorized the sins we do regularly as being less important, kind of your standard, everyday, conventional, small, normal sins. Those big sins from those really bad people, they are offending a holy God. But my little sins, the sins I tolerate in myself, those sins don't really offend God. He just laughs them off like I do. No big deal. Perhaps we don't pursue holiness in our lives because we don't really understand that our God is a holy God. What does that mean? Perhaps we don't pursue holiness in our lives because we think God's holiness isn't really offended by our sins. See, we're pretty comfortable with our present level of holiness. We're fine with the status quo of our lives. We thwart the Holy Spirit as he strives to convict us of our sin. And we're working hard to maintain a certain level of, of mediocrity. The third problem mentioned in our lack of desire in pursuing holiness is that we've not really come to grips with the truth that it takes effort to pursue holiness. Work and devotion and sacrifice and love and confession and change are all required on our part. So we're obedient to God's command to be holy, for I am holy. We must face the fact that we have personal responsibility for our walk in holiness, you can't place your Bible under your pillow at night and then wake up in the morning and you're going to be more obedient to his word. There is no holiness vitamin that you can take with breakfast. And somehow that's going to fix your mind on things that are above and not on the things of earth. See the path of personal and practical holiness takes effort and planning and strategy. And time and priority. It takes education and application, knowing the Word, doing the Word. We're gonna be spending some time in the upcoming weeks and sermons to talk about our personal responsibility in the pursuit of holiness. So, how are we doing on our pursuit of holiness? Are we engaged in the fight? Are we sidelined by our own low expectations and effort? Have we been sidelined by our own categorizing of sins as tolerable? Have we been sidelined by our low view of the holiness of God? If pursuing holiness is for us, if Peter is right, and God is actually commanding us to be holy in our daily lives, and he is right, how are we going to do that? How are we doing? So let's look more closely this morning at what holiness means. What's the definition of holiness? The simple definition of holiness is set apart, separation. To be holy means to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. There's wonderful, great examples of holiness throughout the Old Testament. To reference one for us here at the tabernacle, Think about this now with me. In the Old Testament, the whole tabernacle was considered holy. It was set apart from the people and set apart to God. Yet, within the tabernacle, there's a room called the holy place. The holy place was a separate room within the holy tabernacle where the priests would do most of their daily service. But within the holy tabernacle, set apart, separated from the holy place, was another room. That room was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. That room was separated from the holy place with a veil. Only the Ark of the Covenant was kept inside the most holy place. Only the high priest went into this holy of holies, and only then, once a year, On the day of atonement. Within the holy set apart tabernacle was the holy set apart holy place and then the holy of holies set apart even more. Each one more separated, set apart from the other. Each one more set apart from sin. Each one more set apart to devotion of God. Holiness means... To set apart. Now, most often, we exclusively stress the negative aspects of the definition of holiness when we come to practical holiness. We almost always talk about holiness being set apart from sin. Traditionally, pursuing holiness in our lives was all about the things you're not supposed to do. If you just don't do these certain things, the biggies, then you're holy. Kevin DeYoung said, It was too common in the past to equate holiness with abstaining from a few taboo practices, such as drinking or smoking and dancing. Godliness meant you avoided the no-no list. He says of himself, I know when I was growing up, it seemed like holiness meant no alcohol, no drugs, and no sex. I wouldn't have known how to get drugs if I tried. Beer smelled bad. And they're sure shooting wasn't a long line of girls itching to get close to me. So I felt pretty holy. From this brief story, it's clear that list based holiness, Pharisaical false holiness, falls way short of true biblical holiness. Holiness has nothing to do with adherence to a man made list. Nothing. I think this is one of the main reasons why there can be such a reluctance to pursue holiness. Because our Christian culture has made holiness just a list of prohibitions. Holiness is a list of don'ts. The whole focus is being set apart on just these certain cultural Christianized sins. This false Pharisaical list of don'ts for holiness has influenced many people to just give up on God altogether because God becomes this overbearing dictator demanding adherence to this man-made list. But that in no way reflects who God really is. That in no way reflects what holiness really is. And that in no way is what it means to walk in holiness. Holiness does mean being set apart from sin. It does include putting to death sin in our life, but not in the absence of a loving, gracious relationship with him, but rather because of a loving, gracious relationship with him. You see, there's still the positive side of the definition of holiness, of being set apart to him. The positive side of holiness is being set apart to God, being devoted to God, to love him, to have a relationship with him, to worship him, to serve him, to enjoy him. Now the whole trinity is called holy in the Bible. We have the Holy Father, we have the Holy Son, we have the Holy Spirit, all together the Holy Trinity. Now think about this with me. Were they holy before the entrance of sin into the world. Was the triune God holy in eternity past, long before creation? See, holiness cannot just be defined by sin or separation from sin. Holiness can't only mean separation from something. For before there was sin, before there was any creation, before there was anything from the Godhead to be separated from, the Godhead was holy. There was no separation from, only separation to. There was no set apart from, there was only set apart to, devotion to. There was only the positive aspects of holiness, their purity and their devotion to one another. See, holiness... It's not just defined as what is it separated from sin, but first it was defined as for what it was separated to. Devotion to each other. The Holy Trinity and eternal past express their holiness to each other through their devotion to each other. We see this in the wedding ceremony. We call a wedding ceremony holy matrimony. Because a couple is being set apart from all the other people, and they're being set apart only to each other. In the wedding vows, we say something like this, forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you. Do you see it? That's holiness. Forsaking all others, set apart from will be faithful to set apart to. See, holiness is absolute, exclusive, pure, permanent, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion. Nobody walks around after the wedding ceremony all upset, you know, wringing their hands. Look at all I just gave up. Look at what I can't do now. No more dating other people. No more going out with the other girl. No more seeing other men. Wow, look at all the things I've given up. Look at all the things I have to stop doing. Man, it's a lot for this relationship. No one's walking around after a wedding ceremony that way. Instead, what? What? The exact opposite of the heart overflows from the beloved. They have willingly and wantingly, voluntarily and enthusiastically, eagerly, they proclaim, I forsake all others so that I can experience the exclusive, devoted, undying love of my beloved. We willingly separate from others to experience the exclusive devotion of the one we love. Do you see it? That's us in Christ. That's holiness. Holiness is not a list of things we don't do. It's being set apart in devotion to God, in relationship, in love to God. We willingly separate from sin. We enthusiastically and eagerly forsake all others to experience the devotion of the love that we have for our beloved, and Jesus, our beloved for us. Holiness is experiencing the absolute, exclusive, pure, permanent, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion of us to God and God to us, set apart. Holiness is the very basis of every marriage. It's the very basis of our relationship with God. And it's a good thing. It's the best thing. Now I belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for all eternity. The pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of an ever-growing devotion to God. The pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of an ever-growing devotion to God. In a real sense, holiness is a way of describing love. The exclusive love of a heart devoted to its beloved. It's not hard on our wedding day. To forsake all others and, and vow to be loyal and, and faithful to our spouse. It's a joy. It's an overflow of our heart of love. Far too often in our attitude towards holiness, we have focused on the forsaking of sin to the detriment of focusing on the faithfulness, on the loyalty, on the fidelity, on the devotion of holiness. Holiness. In our lives to Him? How would the pursuit of holiness in our life change if we saw it as a positive expression of our love and devotion to God? Think about that. How would the pursuit of holiness in your life change if you saw it positive, as a positive expression of your love and devotion to God? The pursuit of holiness is really the pursuit of an ever-growing devotion to Jesus. In our relationship with him, it's the expression of our commitment and fidelity and love and faithfulness and loyalty to him. Why wouldn't we want to deal with the struggles of sin in our lives? Because we're set apart to him. Jesus has made us his own. Why wouldn't we want to live a life of devotion to him? It's our response to his love for us. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death in our place for our sins. He rose again in victory over death, over hell, over the grave, so that he could provide for his beloved, for the ones he loves. Life, true life, abundant life, eternal life. Pursuing holiness is an expression of our devotion to him because Jesus is unwaveringly devoted to us. Loved with an everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, gracious spirit from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, the full and perfect peace. Oh, the transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. Devotion. Forsaking all others, forsaking all sin, we will be faithful to you, Jesus. We will be devoted to you. Let's pray. Father, now in these moments we're asking your spirit to move within us, to challenge us and to convict us and to teach us to apply your truth to our hearts and lives. And Lord, we pray simple prayers now to you like help us be holy. Lord, we pray simple prayers like help me want to be holy. Lord, we pray Help me to see holiness as devotion to you, as an expression of my faithful love and commitment to you. Lord, I pray that for each one of us. I pray that throughout the week we might pray these kind of prayers so that, Lord, you might move in us in a way to change us, your beloved. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.